All right, thank you guys. Um, well, we're going to have a, a bit of a unique time, maybe a special time of focus on Thanksgiving as we usher in this week and uh, the celebration of Thanksgiving uh, later this week. And I've titled the, the time, The Wisdom of Thanksgiving. I'm going to draw from some Proverbs, but then I'm going to branch off into some other areas. Um, I've been assigned today the, the opportunity to read Scripture in the main worship service, and I'm, I've been given Psalm 107 uh, as the reading. And you know, it struck me as I've been thinking about uh, to, you know, this morning, and I've been thinking about um, our, you know, kind of wrapping up our study in Proverbs and kind of getting to an end of that particular study. And Psalm 107, the very last verse, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. And um, there's two things that I want to draw out from that to kind of uh, get our, our time started today. Um, one, well, the last verse says this, Whoever is wise, let's focus on wisdom, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the way this psalm concludes, and it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Over and over again, you have multiple refrains of the various ways that God has helped and responded to the cries of people um, for his help and, and, the, and the injunction for those people to respond with deep gratitude and thanksgiving. This is a psalm that just over and over again calls out for those who have been helped by the Lord to offer thanks. And it ends by this saying, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Whoever is wise, let him be one who recognizes all that the Lord has done in so many ways. And let him respond with thanksgiving over and over and over again. This is the psalm that says, uh, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So, with that in mind as sort of an initial backdrop for our time, I do want at the very end of our time to give you an opportunity to say so. I'd love for you guys as we're walking through our little study here, for you to be thinking about things that you would just want to say out loud uh, in this group as a way of just testimony and, a, and an encouragement to those around you for the way that the Lord has been faithful to you and blessed you. And of course, I'm not going to go around the room and say, you go, you go, you go, but I'm just going to give you an opportunity as you, as you wish to, to say something uh, about the goodness of God in, in your heart of gratitude in response to that, that faithfulness and that goodness. So we'll have a time of letting the redeemed of the Lord say so at the end. As I think about this, though, and I think about this Last verse in Psalm 107 that, that says, Whoever is wise will be about thanksgiving. Whoever is wise will be faithful and consistent, even constant, in recognizing the need for outward, verbal praise and thanksgiving and recognition of all that the Lord has done and who He is and all of His power and provision and care. I think about this wisdom that you find just in the act of being thankful, in the priority of thanksgiving, in the virtue, actually, of thanksgiving, as we look to celebrate that in a particular way this week. And so I, I, I kind of have a few different sort of ideas or thoughts to put in your mind um, for you to consider maybe meditate on and think about as you think about your own celebration of thanksgiving or maybe more appropriately, uh, joining the rest of the redeemed and saying so. Uh, just recognizing that it doesn't require, obviously, a special week or a special day uh, for those who are in Christ to be thankful people. In fact, that should be the hallmark of our character 
and it should be characteristic of our conduct, especially as we gather together as God's people in the body of Christ. So let's, let's talk about this for a moment. So when I think about Thanksgiving and the wisdom of Thanksgiving, I draw from Proverbs. When you look at Proverbs, there's not, there's not a lot of direct or explicit statements about Thanksgiving or being thankful or being grateful. Obviously, you know, you go to different parts of Scripture, and that term or that terminology is very explicitly stated in all, you know, all throughout Scripture about being thankful. I mean, the Psalms, obviously, is replete with the terminology of gratitude or thanksgiving. And, of course, we're going to look at a particular New Testament passage in a little bit that's very explicit about being thankful. Um, but Proverbs, not so much. You don't find that explicit language referenced, but you do find a lot of inference about thanksgiving or being thankful or being grateful. And, and one of the things that you see in Proverbs is, is this thanksgiving priority, what I would call a thanksgiving priority. Uh, it's, it's, it's understanding what comes first or what's, what's primary and, and driving us toward gratitude. And Proverbs, in many places, but I've just listed a few here, would drive us to this priority of thanksgiving that is really just an awareness that contentment in God is the key to true riches. Contentment in God is the key to true riches. When you think about being thankful, when you think about the Thanksgiving season, most of the time we are inclined to express gratitude or thankfulness for the material blessings of God, for the material or physical provisions of God, which is fine and appropriate. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's, it, we should be grateful every day for God's care and provision, for the roofs over our heads, for the food that we eat, I mean, the very sustenance of life, the family and relationships that we have, the friendships that we share. All those things are indeed blessings of God, and we should be mindful of God's provision of those things and be thankful for them, no doubt. But oftentimes, in sort of just a more broad, sweeping way, Thanksgiving, you'll find people gathered around and celebrating, particularly in our, our country and our culture, and they'll express just sort of generic Thanksgiving for all of the things that they have, all the things that God's provided. And of course, as we know, Thanksgiving in our day and time is really about you know, a gratitude for, for the sales that go on in all the stores, right? I mean, Thanksgiving obviously has been taken over, in, in some sense, by shopping for Christmas. Um, do you guys remember in days gone by when Black Friday was genuinely on Friday? Remember that? Not anymore, right? Black Friday is no longer on Friday. So now it's edged into Thanksgiving Day, right? Um, you, I don't know how many of you have ever read about or studied the history of Thanksgiving, but it's really kind of fascinating to, to look at it. I'm going to read a few passages from the very first Thanksgiving to just kind of set our minds in, around one of, the, one of the ideas I want to put in front of you. But when you look at the Thanksgiving proclamation, that's sort of a, an annual tradition by the President of the United States, uh, the first proclamation by a president was given by George Washington. That, pro, that Thanksgiving proclamation was not a proclamation of an official holiday, but it was a proclamation of Thanksgiving, and it was really sort of centered on a th- a gratitude for God's providential blessings in in the the founding of our country and all the ways that God helped the people of the United States of America form a union that and, and a focus on religious liberty is a, a key principle there. Um, there was obviously a quiet period, and, and even even through all the way up till Abraham Lincoln, 
there was no proclamation, but Abraham Lincoln instituted Thanksgiving Day um, after the Battle of Gettysburg with a proclamation in, in setting aside a day, a Thanksgiving holiday. Then uh, every year for 75 years after that, there would be a Thanksgiving Day proclamation. Um, and then um, uh, in 1939, I believe, Franklin Delano Roosevelt decided to move the Thanksgiving holiday up earlier because he was pressured by the business community to afford more shopping time for the Christmas season. So that's an interesting, sort of in our own nation's history, an interesting turn toward you know, a response to the marketplace around this holiday. And it, you, you see this transition from, from you know, thankfulness for God's care and providence and, and all that and God's provision. Um, and this was just a response. And it was, you know, the Great Depression was under, underway, so there's a lot, you know, a lot of economic despair uh, going on in the country. But it was a pretty controversial move in some quarters in our, in our nation's history. And, of course, that got reversed a couple of years later, back to its uh, regular, I think, fourth Thursday uh, as the holiday. But just an interesting, interesting recognition that most of the time, the gratitude that is expressed by many at this time of year is a gratitude for God's material provision that, if we just sort of carry it out logically, leads us to the ability to take advantage of all the Black Friday, now Black Thursday shopping deals, Right? But when you look in Scripture, and particularly in Proverbs, what you see is that, um, that it's about contentment. Contentment in God is the key to true riches, not, not the acquisition of things. So, for example, Proverbs 13.25, the righteousness has enough, excuse me, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. In Proverbs 17.1, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And then Proverbs 15, 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So Proverbs, even in light of all of its practical teaching on uh, how to be successful, if you will, in this life and and act wisely in a way that leads to even practical success, the ultimate focus is on contentment in God even insofar as that contentment is, is accompanied by little. That better to be content in God, better to be righteous, better to have peace than to have plenty and have feasting. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So a Thanksgiving priority is, is an aware, it begins with an awareness that, that contentment in God is a, is a source of true riches, not not the acquisition of things, not the, the ability to, to celebrate all of the, the blessings of relationship and family. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that the person who is alone, the person who is in prison, the person who has, is living on a sustenance um, of living, I mean, it, it can be content in God and can be thankful. And in fact, we have testimony of that probably in our own lives as well as among those of people of faith. So prior, the priority is contentment in God. Uh, a little bit of Thanksgiving theology. So that's a priority. How about some Thanksgiving theology for us to think about? I would just say that when you look at a Thanksgiving theology, um, what you see in Proverbs, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, that there's an understanding of providence that runs really, really deep in those who are genuinely and consistently thankful. 
a deep understanding of the providence of God. And of course, this was very clear in the minds of those who sort of ushered in this celebration of Thanksgiving. The, the pilgrims understood this. Upon landing in America, they conducted a prayer service, and then they quickly turned to building shelters. This is, of course, in 1620, and they, they landed uh, late in the, in the fall of 1620, and they were confronted with the harsh New England winter, and they were rather unprepared for that, and they had to deal with starvation and sickness. Um, it killed almost half their population off. And, but then just through prayer, through hard work, um, even the, the assistance of the Indian friends around them, they reaped a rich harvest in the summer of 1621. And most of what we know about this first Thanksgiving, we have just from two primary sources. One is from Governor William Bradford, one of the founders and longtime governor of this Plymouth colony. And then the other is from Master Edward Winslow, who was a leader on the Mayflower and in in the Plymouth colony. William Bradford said this as he recounts uh, this, this initial celebration of this bountiful harvest that was on the heels of a harsh, harsh winter and a lot of death and privation that they endured. He says, They began now to gather in the small harvest they had, and to fit up their houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength, and had all things in good plenty. For as some were thus employed in affairs abroad, others were exercised in fishing about cod and bass and other fish, of which they took good store, of which every family had their portion. All the summer there was no want, and now began to come in store of fowl as winter approached of which this place did abound when they came first, but afterward decreased by degrees. And besides waterfowl, there was great store of wild turkeys, of which they took many, besides venison, etc. Besides, they had about a peck of meal a week to a person, or now since harvest Indian corn to that proportion, which made many afterwards write so largely of their plenty here to their friends in England, which were not feigned but true reports." So he's given this accounting of of this bountiful harvest that led to this celebration. He writes later on in his his, uh, history of this time, he says, Thus out of small beginnings, greater things have been produced by his hand, by God's providential hand, that made all things of nothing and gives being to all things that are. And as one small candle may light a thousand, so the light here kindled hath shone unto many. And then Edward Winslow said this, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor, Bradford, sent four men oops, sent four men on fowling, that so we might after a special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time amongst other recreations we exercised our arms Many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty." 
There was a, an, an abiding awareness, an understanding of the providence of God that ran deep. And I would just argue that Proverbs would call us to that same understanding. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but Proverbs 16, 1-9 speaks of this providence, this recognition that everything is from the hand of God and we are to trust in Him in plenty and in want. And it, that takes you back to this idea of contentment in God. The plans of the heart belong to man, Proverbs 16, 1 says. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The Lord will have the final word. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So when you think about being grateful, and you think about the tendency, our, even our tendency, to only express or have a persistent disposition of gratitude, it's largely dependent, is it not, on circumstances that we find favorable to us. And, and even more sadly, on circumstances that we would consider of a more beneficial material kind. And that tends to induce a temporary, sort of trivial kind of gratitude. But the kind of thanksgiving that we find emul- uh, uh, coming out of those people who are truly godly, it comes from those who have a deep understanding that God is the giver of, of everything. God uses everything for his purposes and his glory. That we are, we are a part of his grand design and plan, that he is at work in all things, even in difficulty and trial. And we can be thankful in and, th- in and through every circumstance and recognize that he is at work and that he is using the trials of this life to make us mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So an understanding of providence that runs deep is a key to being truly thankful. So how about Thanksgiving ecclesiology? That's a little bit of Thanksgiving theology. How about Thanksgiving ecclesiology? Let's think about the church. Let's think about life in the body of Christ. The Thanksgiving theology is, excuse me, ecclesiology is characterized by an active engagement in genuine Christian fellowship that fosters gratitude. Active engagement in genuine Christian fellowship that fosters gratitude. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17, captures this well. This is jumping to the New Testament now. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I would just argue that to the extent that we remain actively engaged, actively engaged in genuine Christian fellowship, that will foster genuine gratitude to the Lord. If you and I are engaged in active Christian fellowship, which would involve accountability, some, someone to come alongside us and hold us accountable for areas of our lives that are falling short of God's design, encouragement and bearing our burdens, how much gratitude is fostered in the body of Christ when someone is low, someone is hurting, someone is struggling, someone is sick, and fellow believers come around them and just begin to provide for them in all manner of ways. Praying with them, sitting with them, bringing meals to them, running errands for them. You talk about fostering gratitude in that kind of context. And being a part of the body of Christ amongst fellow believers who share like precious faith and who recognize that they are trophies of the very grace of God. And it leads to this singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude. Being actively engaged in life in the body of Christ fosters gratitude. If it's genuine Christian fellowship that we're engaged in. Unifying around the truth of God's word. Letting the word of God dwell in us richly. And giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I would argue that part of a good Thanksgiving ecclesiology is to recognize that our involvement in the body of Christ, just by sheer commitment and conviction and consistency in that regard, will foster deep gratitude in any believer and help sustain it as well. Well, how about a Thanksgiving soteriology? How about, let's talk about salvation itself. And that being a source of unbelievable, unparalleled thanksgiving. A penetrating clarity about the nature of sovereign grace that floods your soul with constant thanksgiving. We can be recognizing the priority of contentment in God as, as, a, as a source of thanksgiving. If we're constantly discontent and restless, and we're tying our sense of gratitude to material things or the external circumstances of life, of course, we're not going to be able to sustain a a consistent heart of gratitude. And certainly, fellowship and life in God's church and life in the body of Christ helps foster that gratitude. But but let's go deeper than that, and let's look at this, this penetrating clarity that we need to always have about the sovereign grace, the magnificent sovereign grace that has brought us to Christ and how that stirs up thanksgiving like no other. And I was drawn to, I've been thinking about this, I don't don't even know, aside from just the prompting of God's spirit, I don't know what made me think of this particular account, but I've been thinking about it off and on all week. I uh, I told Alicia last night, I've been thinking about something and... uh, just trying to kind of work through whether or not I wanted to include it. But um, I've just been thinking about the, the scene at the crucifixion of Christ, and in particular, the two thieves on the cross with Christ. Um, and just thinking about salvation and how that is really just a picture of everyone's state. 
The cross of Christ, Christ on the cross, surrounded by the two thieves, and that whole scene is a very vivid picture of, of really everyone. But in particular, we have a, a visibility into a conversion of one of the thieves that's just profound. So I'm just going to read to you the account from Luke, Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 43. Excuse me, verse 32 to 43. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him, with Christ. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You have this incredible scene What you don't see in Luke's gospel, that you do see in Matthew and Mark, is that both the thieves were mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Prior to this conversion experience, this work of sovereign grace in this one thief's life, he was part of the mocking, scoffing crowd and echoing the sentiments of his partner on the other side of Christ. Mocking and scoffing, save yourself and save us. The amazing thing here is that Jesus was on the cross, and it wasn't about him saving himself, was it? It was about him saving God's elect. It was about his saving work. And by a sheer sovereign work of God's grace, this thief... His eyes are open on the cross with Christ. And that's really what we see in all the world and all humanity. You see on one side those who would scoff and berate and ridicule and mock Christ. And on the other side, those who would scoff and ridicule and mock Christ save only for the sovereign work of God's grace and calling them to himself. We're all in one of those places. And what you see here, and it's really interesting as you think about our study of Proverbs, but the very first thing that comes out of this converted thief's mouth as this salvation process gets underway is a reference to the fear of the Lord. And what do we know from Proverbs? That the fear of the Lord is... It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. 
he, he calls out to the other thief, do you not even fear God? So somehow, by God's grace and by the power of his spirit, his eyes are opened and he is now aware that he is in the presence of God himself. And he's no longer fearing death. He's no longer joining his partner in saying, save yourself and save us. In other words, get me out of this. Save my life. He's now fearing judgment. The judgment, the eternal judgment of a holy God. By God's sovereign grace, his eyes are miraculously open to see that he is not just facing physical death, but he's facing judgment and wrath. And he's, he's all of a sudden stunned as he calls out to the other thief and rebukes him. Do you not even fear God? And he also has this clear recognition of sin and the justified judgment that's befalling him. Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds? So he, he has this, this spirit-enabled, eye-opening recognition that he is facing not just physical death, but the judgment of a holy and righteous God. And fear strikes him. And he's stunned that no one else is fearing God right now. And then he verbalizes an absolutely clear recognition of his own destitute condition, his own justified condemnation. He's there with his partner thief for good reason and good cause. He's not a victim of circumstance. He doesn't have some rationale for what led to this sordid affair and this difficult scenario in his life, but he's clearly aware of his sin, of his culpability, and of the judgment that he should face in this rebuke to this other thief. And he has a clear belief in Christ's sinless sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying that he's in all these short, in this short period of time, he's got this very fully developed, you know, systematic theology of the doctrine of salvation. But, but he understands that Christ is, is doing something profound and unique because he says to him in verse 41, he says, this man has done, he says to the thief, we are receiving justly what is due to us for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He, he now understands that this man is hanging on a cross and he's, he's sacrificing himself and he's sinless. He's guiltless. He's not the one that should be here. We should be here, but he shouldn't. He is, he's beginning to be aware of this sinless sacrifice that Christ is offering up on the cross. And then he expresses faith in Christ as both Savior and Lord. In verse 42, He says, Jesus, Jesus, God who saves, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, why would he say your kingdom if he wasn't referring to a king? So he acknowledged Jesus as the the God who saves, who is also a king. 
And in that moment, there is an articulation of faith in Christ as both a Savior, one who is willing to save the repentant. But he's also a king who has a coming kingdom. And Jesus' response is stunning. He commits an instantaneous and unmerited grace of sonship to this thief. Truly I say to you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. This is, this is not some commitment. The, 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 the request by the thief was, remember me when you enter your kingdom. If I could just have a place in your kingdom in the future, whenever that is, when you usher in your sovereign rule, if I could just have a place there. And the, the profound sovereign grace of God offers sonship. Not just a place in the, in the kingdom limits. This astounding work of grace to a clearly identified, guilty, wicked sinner that is you and me on the cross and the gift of God is sonship. It's fellowship. It's oneness with Christ. You will be with me in paradise today. So I don't know about you, but that makes me thankful. I don't know about you, but when I think about celebrating Thanksgiving, I am indeed grateful for all God's provision. And it's, it's ridiculous, really, when I think about how gracious God has been to me. I am thankful for my family. I'm thankful for um, my, my job and the ability to work. I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for this church and for all the people here who encourage me and challenge me and hold me accountable. And, but when I think about the kind of thanksgiving that sustains us, I hope you're like me and you need to go to the cross. And I just look at these two thieves and I see myself there and I'm, I'm moved to gratitude in ways that nothing else moves me. So I invite you to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Does anybody have anything they want to say a word of thanks for before we close? You know, uh, talk about providence, you know, and the root of that is, is provision. And, uh, of course, we have, we know that uh, from the fall in the garden, 
All the descendants of Adam have been born under condemnation. We have no greater need than that of a Savior. And, uh, you know, when Abraham was taking Isaac up the mountain for the sacrifice, and Isaac asked, where is the sacrifice? Abraham replied, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. There's your providence. There's your provision. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? that comes to my mind is, is my kids but not necessarily for the obvious reasons but um, me and Allison had kids just so early and it, I could I mean looking back uh, just in God's providence he just knew that to root out a lot of selfishness and root out a lot of uh, just time that we would have wasted on ourselves that we needed to, to have kids in that time um, and I, so I just look back at um, what, what having kids that young allowed us to, to mature and what allowed us to, to be you know, who we are now that God has made us to be. But even having kids that early, the relationship that it's kind of brought in our families where now we're kind of, uh, in a way, forced uh, a lot of times to have these interactions with family members that want to see our kids and want to see us because we have kids and how that's presenting all these opportunities for the gospel. And... Um, and yet again, the, you just see a lot of young couples, uh, I mean, even people who are really close to me, who uh, just, just will wait to have kids. And I mean, it's, it's such a, I mean, certain part of life, but <clears throat> I mean, it just kind of forces you to take your eyes off yourself and, and start looking to other people and look at your own heart and where's the wickedness, where's the selfishness. I mean, above a lot of things, that's just a huge thing yeah. that I, I'm just so thankful for. That's good. Anyone else? I'm grateful that it's not complicated. I mean, God gives us his Bible and we learn it and read it and, and do it. It's not really that complicated. It comes down to your choices and my life's not complicated. I don't have... I only have one husband. <laughs> I have two kids, you know. We don't have a bunch of extra family divorce here and there and different circumstances bring that you know around sometimes but it just it's just not that complicated you just do what you're supposed to do and God lays it out for you and it's not you know revealed to only the highly intelligent of God and you just it's simple 
I just think of God's electing love before the foundation of the world. And maybe it's a product of getting older, but you just see all the activities of this life. It's just not anything that our life is ultimately to be with God. And even here, you know to get that barrage of activities and things and culture says you need to be back like the thief on the cross. Mm. It's, and you look at your life and oh, it's amazing. Mm. God picks out losers you know, not because of anything but his grace. Mm -hmm. Good. I'm thankful for ever since as I've been getting older I think the main thing that I've been thankful for is that at our church there are people who are so zealous for the word they're so moved by the gospel that it's just had a profound influence on my life just the teaching that I've been in contact with the people that graciously disciple me it's radically changed how I think of the world, who I am, my identity, whereas I was once separated from Christ, but because of the zeal and the sincerity and the heart of the teachers here, I'm now a believer. Mm. It was through the gospel being so zealously taught that I'm here and I'm able to understand the word of God. So what I'm thankful for is a church that breeds such amazing discipleship mm. and such amazing teaching that it brings the rationalist to his knees to realize that the only thing rational in the world is the gospel. Yes. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I was trying to explain the sovereignty of God and salvation the other day to my 15-year-old son. I couldn't do it. I just that I have no yeah. Why God would choose some and not others? Why he would choose me and not others. I no idea. You know, you just have to be grateful that he does. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's pretty much it. It's hard to hard to fathom. Well, if no one else has anything, I'll close with a word of prayer. Thank you guys for being here. I do hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving week.